Good evening. My name is Simon Black. I'm the sports columnist for Canadian Dimension and a member of the editorial collective. On behalf of Canadian Dimension magazine, I'd like to welcome you to an evening with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author, and activist Chris Hedges. I'm honored this evening to be sharing the stage not only with our guests, but also with Jim Stanford, who's seated. Where's Jim? Oh, standing over here. Jim is one of Canada's most well-known economists and activists, the author of a great book, Economics for Everyone, and one of the few radicals ever to secure a regular spot on CBC television. I'm also joined on stage with Poonam Kosla. Poonam is a doctoral candidate at York University, a comrade, a profound thinker, a scholar activist, and perhaps most importantly, a generous mentor to many of the city's young freedom fighters. Jim will be introducing Chris shortly, and Poonam will be moderating the question and answer following the talk. There will be a Q&A which will last about 30 minutes long. There are two mics at either side of the stage here. There are no mics upstairs, we apologize. So if you want to ask a question, you are seated upstairs. You'll have to make your way down at the end of the talk to do that. We're also taking questions via social media. On Twitter, the hashtag, the hashtag is AskHedges. There's an old joke on the left uh, which is meant to illustrate the difference between the North American working class and the European working class. It goes something like this. In North America, a worker drives past their boss's house and points to it and says, one day I'm going to own a house like that. In Europe, the worker drives past their boss's house and says, one day I'm going to get that guy. Now, the original version of that joke, it's actually it's a rude word used to describe the boss, but uh, we're in a church, and I'm a lapsed Catholic, and I don't want to be feeling guilty for the next few weeks. So, <laughs> What we've seen over the last few years is massive resistance to austerity in Europe and around the world. But if we look closer to home, if we look at Idle No More and Defenders of the Land, the new waves of feminist organizing, the Quebec student movement, the campaign for sex workers' rights, the movements against police brutality and racial profiling right here in Toronto, and the creation of a new super union to which Jim is affiliated, Unifor, hopefully with superpowers. We realize that in Canada we have vibrant and militant social movements. And movements for social change and the left more broadly need spaces of discussion and debate spaces of intellectual exchange, a home for the radical imagination outside of our own heads. Since its humble beginnings 50 years ago in our founder and publisher Saigonic's Winnipeg basement, Canadian Dimension has been such a space, a vital institution in our infrastructure of dissent. Canadian Dimension is not tied to any one political party, to any one social movement, to any one faction of the left. We are independent, and we are radical. We are activists and intellectuals, feminists and environmentalists, 
settlers and indigenous peoples, anarchists, social democrats, Marxists, Greens, and so on. We have never split over what Trotsky ate for breakfast. Not to, not to pick on Trotskyists, some of my best friends are Trotskyists. We welcome a multiplicity of views, of ideological positions, of left-wing politics. We cover culture, the media, sports, Quebec, the labor movement, and the environment. One issue, you'll be reading about the electronic dance music of a tribe called Red. The next, about challenging sex segregation in sport. One month, about how to kick a, mi a mining corporation out of your community. The next, about grassroots strategies for defeating the Harper Conservatives, which I'm assuming some of the people in this room might be interested in doing. And we at the magazine are actually quite modest about our mandate and our ambitions. As our motto runs, Canadian Dimension is for people who want to change the world. All of this is really an elaborate way of saying is that there's a table at the back in the foyer <laughs> selling subscriptions and back issues. I urge you to stop by on your way out and take out a subscription to Canadian Dimension. Again, I'd like to thank you for coming. And on that note, I'd like to introduce or bring Jim Stanford to the stage to introduce Chris Hedges. Thank you. All right, this is fabulous. I'm Jim Stanford, economist with Unifor, the new union. All right. But uh, I've been a regular contributor to Canadian Dimension long before Unifor ever existed. In fact, long before the CAW even existed uh, before that. And if you do the math, you'll know I started writing for Canadian Dimension when I was four years old, uh, according to that. I was a, a prodigy. Uh, Canadian Dimension is a wonderful institution. Let me just add my bit to, uh, uh, to Simon's uh, report. It is not just a magazine, it's a movement, uh, it's a community, and it is thrilling to see uh, this group of folks uh, here in Toronto where we've been trying for ages to build uh, a community of support uh, for Canadian Dimension. It's also thrilling for me personally to get to introduce uh, our speaker tonight, uh, Chris Hedges. Uh, Chris has fulfilled many roles. Uh, he's played a very important role uh, for the global left uh, in informing us, uh, inspiring us, and uh, energizing us. Uh, he, of course, has been a foreign correspondent, an award-winning journalist, uh, a commentator. Uh, he is not just a pundit, though. He is also an activist, uh, played a personal role in Occupy Wall Street, uh, in the Green Party of the United States, and other important initiatives. And he is, uh, of course, a globally uh, influential author. Uh, his latest book, I highly uh, recommend, uh, we should all be reading it, uh, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, written by Chris, uh, illustrated by Joe Sacco. Uh, it's an infuriating uh, portrayal of what's happening at uh, the ground level in America today uh, with the meltdown, with the crisis, uh, with the attempt to sweep the human casualties uh, of that crisis uh, out of view. It feels to me a lot like war reporting, uh, which I guess in a way Chris did uh, in, in his other uh, foreign correspondent work, but this time from the trenches of um, social and, and economic uh, meltdown. Uh, Chris, of course, has even dabbled in the legal profession, uh, of course. Uh, he was uh, personally involved in the um, uh, lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the National Defense Authorization Act uh, in the U.S. and its provisions that allowed for uh, indefinite uh, detention. 
And in May of last year, of course, a state court in uh, New York uh, said that law was unconstitutional. So thank you very much, uh, Chris, for that. Of course, there are more chapters still to be written in that story, and we'll be following that uh, very closely. We in Canada are very lucky uh, that Chris has a strong Canadian connection. He's visited uh, here many times. He's taught uh, in Toronto. He has a family connection uh, that brings him back. But uh, by far, the most historically important Canadian connection of Chris Hedges was that famous day in October 2011 on a TV show on the People's Network, CBC, where I occasionally appear as well. When Chris confronted that pompous blowhard, Kevin O'Leary, <laughs> and left him gasping for mercy. It was a discussion about Occupy Wall Street. It's on YouTube. You have to go and check it out tonight when you get home. In case you haven't seen it this month, you should watch it every month, actually. <laughs> just to re-inspire yourself. I have had one or two interactions uh, with Kevin O'Leary uh, over the years, and of course, uh, he was his usual uh, arrogant, uh, disrespectful, and factually inaccurate self when uh, he was uh, interviewing Chris that day. Um, imagine this cartoonish character, this buffoon, saying to Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, you're a left-wing nut bar, okay? I mean, I am amazed that lightning didn't strike the studio uh, when he said that, but you calmly, intelligently, um, and uh, mercilessly dissected uh, that bully. Uh, it was an embarrassment to our national broadcaster that, that he's even on, frankly, but it was... Uh, <laughs> with immense pride to the vast majority of CBC viewers who expect something higher uh, to watch you that day, uh, Chris. So, thank you for what you're doing to build a better world. Thank you for keeping Canada on your personal radar screen. And on a personal note, thank you for putting Kevin O'Leary in his place. I present Chris Hedges. Thank you. you. You neglected to mention my wife is Canadian from Scarborough. I notice in New York she does tell everyone she's from Toronto. Um, I've told this story many times, so if you've heard it, excuse me, but every, you, she, she's not, you don't usually think of Canadians as being chauvinists, um, but something happens on July 1st, and she hangs the largest Canadian, I don't even know where she found it, flag in front of our house in Princeton, and she leaves it up through July 4th. So there's no question on our street about where uh, our loyalties lie. Um, before I begin talking, uh, I'm sure you have followed the debate over Syria in the United States. That is an, a seismic moment uh, in modern American history because what you saw was the war machine trot out all of the old mechanisms which have been working for the 12 years we've been at war, Afghanistan, 12 in Afghanistan, 10 in Iraq. Uh, they warned us about the perfidious 
dictator who was going to turn his weapons of mass destruction on us. Um, uh, they trotted out the atrocity photos. Uh, they appealed to American exceptionalism. Uh, they even went back and uh, resurrected all the old cliches about uh, World War II. Kerry even called it a Munich moment and talked about the graves at Normandy, and none of it worked. The rhetoric, the dead rhetoric of war failed. And um, not just domestically, but of course internationally. And it, it blindsided the Obama administration. Uh, they, they snuck out of it through an offhand comment by Kerry. Um, but it's a very important moment. Uh, we saw the same kind of moment after a decade of the war in Vietnam, where people forget that there was uh, a majoritarian support for the war for those first 10 years. Uh, and great animosity directed against the anti-war movement. My father, who was a Presbyterian minister and a veteran of World War II, he'd been a sergeant uh, in North Africa in World War II. And World War II, uh, in essence, made him a pacifist. Um, uh, but I remember as a boy going to uh, anti-war demonstrations uh, with him in the 1960s. And um, that uh, recognition of the massive atrocity that that war was, one long atrocity carried out against the Vietnam, Vietnamese people, uh, never really began to sink in until that decade was over. And we shifted from a mythical narrative about war to a sensual understanding of war, sensual in a sense that suddenly we began to respond to facts uh, and to feelings and to emotions rather than to myth. And I think that's exactly what's happened in the United States now. Um, the book that I wrote with Joe Sacco, uh, we spent two years on it. And I don't know how many of you know Sacco's work. Um, he's remarkable. He's a graphic novelist, a graphic writer, a graphic, uh, writes graphic books. Um, I don't, uh, it's not a genre I'm particularly familiar with. I actually met Joe in Bosnia uh, at the end of the war. We went to uh, a place called um, Garajda together was one of the safe areas that had not been overrun by the Serbs. There were, used to be six of them. They took Zepa, they took Srebrenica in that summer of 95. Uh, they were about to take Garajda. Sarajevo was in a precarious situation. I was in Sarajevo during the war uh, when the NATO bombing campaign was unleashed. And uh, I watched him work. Uh, and he, I quickly realized that he was one of the most brilliant journalists I'd ever met. But he, he has created his own form of journalism where he reports a story out and then uh, he draws it. And it's incredibly labor intensive. His book, uh, uh, Footnotes on Gaza, is one of the great books on the Palestine-Israel conflict, bar none. Um, and I, I was in Gaza at, for the genesis of that book. It took him six years to finish it. Uh, and uh, I, I wanna, we set out to do this book. I very much wanted Sacco because the poor, uh, uh, the underclass, uh, especially in the United States, have been rendered utterly invisible by the media. They don't exist. Nobody sees them. They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're blocked out from consciousness. Um, 
We're facing a time uh, that is deeply distressing. Uh, I speak as a father of four children. Um, you can't, as I'm sure many of you in this room do, read climate science reports, uh, uh, however neutral that language is, and not react with terror. Um, the, uh, one of my, my youngest son is uh, almost six, and one of his favorite books is Out of the Blue, and it's a big picture book of narwhals and, and uh, porpoises, and, and I'll see him flipping through those pages, and every time I see him flipping through those pages, it rips my heart out, because I understand that if there is not a radical transformation into our relationship with the natural world very soon, every single one of those sea creatures will be dead within his lifetime. That's the reality that we face. And uh, one of the most depressing reversals uh, for us as Americans is watching how Canada, which had a sensitivity to the environment under Harper, uh, has become as rapacious in its assault against the natural environment as the United States. And that is because the same forces that drive Barack Obama, drive Harper, uh, and that's called the fossil fuel industry and big corporations. That's who these people work for. They don't work for us. Um, and, uh, you know, as Bill McKibben has valiantly uh, said, if we don't stop that XL pipeline, um, it's sort of, and Hansen, uh, the NASA scientist, has said it as well, it's, it's sort of uh, game over for, for the planet. Um, we're watching the summer Arctic sea ice disappear uh, in front of us, and now, of course, we have just found that it's not only uh, shrinking, but melting from below. Uh, and the response of uh, our corporate overlords is to send up drill teams to drop half-billion-dollar drill bits uh, into the uh, summer sea um, to profit off the death throes of the planet. Um, in theological terms, and I, I was uh, graduated from seminary, the, the forces that are arrayed against us now are forces of death. Um, that's not an exaggeration. Um, and uh, Freud, I think correctly, uh, said that in both within the individual life and within uh, collective life of a society, uh, you are pulled in two directions, either by Eros or Thanatos. Thanatos being uh, the death instinct, uh, that, that intoxication of self-annihilation, which is something that I saw in war, or eros, that instinct to love, to preserve, to conserve, uh, to nurture. Uh, and we live certainly in an age in which Thanatos is clearly ascendant. Um, I wrote a book a couple years ago, a few years ago, called Death of the Liberal Class, and I think they have it there. Um, that book, I, I feel badly for Michael Ignatiev because he makes a brief appearance in that book, but every time I came to Canada, I've known Michael for years, I, that was, I, I ended up sort of savaging poor Michael Ignatiev uh, because he was my Canadian connection up here. Uh, I, I do, uh, you know, Michael and I broke over the Iraq war uh, the day uh, the war was declared. I, I never understood Ignatiev's 
infatuation with American imperialism, because after all, he is Canadian. Um, uh, but the day the war was declared, uh, Bush uh, announced the invasion. Uh, I was asked to be on uh, national public radio on a program called Fresh Air to give sort of my 12 minutes as to why we should not invade Iraq. And I knew that there would be a response, but until I heard the program on the air, I didn't know who the uh, responder would be, and it turned out to be Ignatiev. Um, and uh, it was a very lonely and frustrating time um, uh, because to stand up against the war uh, at that moment, uh, uh, America, especially after 9-11, uh, you know, had drunk deep from that very dark elixir of nationalism, and uh, nationalism at its core is about self-exaltation. Uh, the flip side of nationalism is also racism. Uh, I ended up covering al-Qaeda in uh, Paris. I covered al-Qaeda for the New York Times in Europe and North Africa, and uh, so was meeting weekly with French intelligence and, and the French were going insane because Iraq, of course, had nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, and I would go back and to meetings in New York at the New York Times and transmit uh, what the French were saying, and they were utterly dismissed. Um, in fact, in the newsroom, you would hear jokes about French nationality, French culture, uh, French historical identity, um, and it was, uh, it was symptomatic of the disease, the plague of nationalism, uh, that, that virus that gripped the United States after 9-11, I think, has only been broken now uh, with this attempt by the Obama administration to drop, I don't know if you've, how closely you follow the debate, by the way, the plan was to drop several hundred Tomahawk missiles on Syria. Now, each Tomahawk missile fired by ships in the Eastern Mediterranean carries a 1,000-pound iron fragmentation bomb or 166 cluster bombs. And the, they, you know, the, that euphemistic turn of phrase about collateral damage, we were, we would have talked about massive numbers of civilian dead. Um, and I think that this is a seismic moment. I think America has woken up from that long, drunken revelry of war and realized, as always happens in war, uh, that they've been sold a bill of goods. Um, they've been lied to. Uh, our underclass who constitute the military have been decimated. The numbers of dead don't begin to reflect the numbers of wounded, people with traumatic brain injuries, people who have uh, complete burns all over their body. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think also we have to talk about the uh, trillions of dollars that have been wasted even as we sit now and listen to the House of Representatives uh, talk about cutting back food stamps. Forty million American kids uh, go to bed every night in my country uh, without enough food to eat. Um, and how did we get here? I mean, that, that was the question I asked. I, when I started writing the book, it was originally a book on the press, and uh, I had turned the manuscript into Knopf, a publisher in New York, and they read the manuscript and they hated it. Um, and uh, said that they would publish it only after they assigned an editor to excise all the negativity, what they call the negativity, out of the book. <laughs> now you can imagine how that went down. Um, so I got another publisher to, uh, you get half your advance up front, so I said, look, just give me 
you know, give Kanaf half the advance, you can have the whole book. And in that transference of the manuscript to another publisher, I said, you know, it's not just the press that's collapsed. And, um, but all of the pillars of the liberal establishment have collapsed, including the church, which I come out of. And I uh, wrote a book uh, uh, several years ago uh, going after the Christian right. It, it's uh, called American Fascist, the Christian Right and the War on America. I was trying to reach out to him. And, um, <laughs> and then ended up after that debating uh, some of the so-called new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens and uh, Sam Harris. And uh, it was fast, I had not paid I mean, I think most sort of traditional Christians would probably consider me an atheist. Indeed, I wrote a, I ended up writing a book after those debates um, with a sort of what I thought was a clever but maybe silly title called "I Don't Believe in Atheists." But it was it was a look at that 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 fundamentalism can come in any form. Fundamentalism can be secular, and that's why that the politics of a Harris or a Hitchens dovetailed completely with the Christian right. So uh, the Christian right wants to drop bombs all over the Middle East because Islam is a satanic religion. They want to drop bombs all over the Middle East uh, in the name of Western civilization because these people are, are barbarous. Uh, and, uh, and I think one of my frustrations with the church was that uh, it should have known better, that when uh, the Christian right arose, um, it, it should have had the fortitude to stand up and denounce these people for who they are, which is Christian heretics. Um, you don't have to go to spend three years at Harvard Divinity School, which I did, to understand that Jesus didn't come to make us rich. Um, Jesus... <laughs> Jesus would not bless the military machine of the American empire. Um, Jesus never spoke about abortion. I don't think Jesus knew what abortion was. Um, and the church sat there mute. In fact, of course, it was the disease of tolerance bringing them in for all sorts of dialogue, uh, and, and I, I can't understand why, at least as a clergy, you would spend three years in seminary studying the Christian gospel and then not walk out into the wider world and think that you'd have to fight for it. Uh, and the church, I think, um, because it didn't stand up to the Christian right and because it has not stood up to the evils of corporate capitalism and has retreated internally, where they define spirituality as sort of you know, how is it with me? Which is narcissism. Um, the Bible is very clear. I, I didn't mean to preach a sermon. I guess it's sort of just coming out. But The Bible is very clear that it's not about us. It's about our neighbor. That is pounded home from the story of Cain and Abel until the letters of Paul as Martin Buber correctly points out in his great book, I and Now. The press has withered, uh, the airwaves are destroyed, and I watch with some consternation as Harper attempts to dismantle the CBC. Um, 
because, you know, it's, I told my wife, you know, it's amazing. We do everything wrong in the United States, and then like 10 years later, Canada copies us. <laughs> we're, we're the, just take a visit. I mean, go. I mean, um, you don't want to live the way we're living. Uh, uh, and um, the Democratic Party, uh, which has been completely bought off by corporate dollars, uh, the arts, uh, which have been commercialized or destroyed, um, and academia. I've taught at Princeton. Um, let's be clear, Princeton is a corporation at this point. Uh, so all of the pillars of the liberal establishment went. And the question I asked was, how? Why? What happened? And it took me back to a moment in American history, uh, and it, as Randolph Bourne said correctly in World War I, war is the health of the state. Um, where you had, we had, as in Canada, powerful socialist radical movements and unions that were finally, and, and I think, you know, what many people forget is that in the United States, of all of the industrialized nations in the world, we had the bloodiest labor wars. Hundreds of workers who were attempting to unionize were killed. Thousands were wounded, by far, compared to any country in Europe or anywhere else. And it was really on the blood of our working class, which up until the 19th century were treated little better than serfs that created radical anarcho-syndicalist unions like the Wobblies, the old CIO, the Communist Party, which was an important element in the American left. And as Chomsky will point out, I think Chomsky's speaking, right? He, um, uh, as Chomsky will often say that, that, and he's old enough to remember that, that the Communist Party, uh, especially if you were an African-American, because the other, even Debs, as good as he was on race, uh, like with the Pullman-Porter strikes, and these were not integrated. It's why Paul Robeson joins the Communist Party. Uh, it, we've forgotten completely that they existed, and that's the way they want it. Uh, so you had in, in World War I powerful radical movements that had pushed back against the robber baron class and, uh, and all opposed the war. And one of the driving factors for the war was with the collapse of the Eastern Front, the Kaiser was able to move 51 divisions over to the Western Front. And Wall Street went berserk because they had lent so much money to the British and the French. They knew that if the Germans won the war, that money would never be paid back. Now, you know, things are not black and white in history. The Kaiser did impose a naval blockade. I think there were three American ships that were sunk. There were other elements, but there was absolutely no popular support for the war within the United States at all. And Wilson knew it. And there's a fascinating debate. I went into the Princeton archives at the university library and actually read the papers by a guy named George Creel, Arthur Ballard, and Walter Lippmann. Walter Lippmann is this kind of grand inquisitor, this dark intellectual figure in American history and writes a book that's worth reading uh, because it's a blueprint print for control uh, called uh, Public Opinion. That's where 
Lippmann talks about the how you manufacture consent. And when Chomsky and Herman in 1991 write their book on the press, they pull that line from Lippmann. And I'm reading the notes between Lippmann and Wilson. And Wilson, because he's worried, even when Wilson goes to, to announce, to declare war, he's protected in the streets of Washington uh, by troops of cavalry because he's terrified of anarchist bombs. And, and he wants to impose the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act immediately to shut down, to, in essence, criminalize all dissent, which is where we've come today. And Lippmann says, no, we can create a system of modern mass propaganda that will, as the great writer Dwight MacDonald pointed out in retrospectively, get the masses to call for their own enslavement. It will employ the understanding of crowd psychology, pioneered by Le Bon, Trotter, and of course, Sigmund Freud. Edward Bernays, the father of modern public relations, comes out of this, the Committee for Public Information, or the Creel Commission, because it was headed by George Creel. And, and they were right. And if you read the radical writers like Bourne, like Jane Addams from the period, their despair is not how easily the masses were seduced into the war effort, but how easily the intellectual classes, the Michael Ignatievs of the world, were seduced into the war effort. And um, when the war was, the, 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 that system of mass propaganda, which by the way, was the model that Goebbels used when he created the Nazi propaganda machine. He actually had Bernays' book called Propaganda, that relatives of Bernays would die finally in the death camp is one of the sort of sad ironies of history. And at the end of the war, all of that public relations machine, that system of mass propaganda, moved to Madison Avenue and started working on behalf of corporations. And the, the holdouts after the war, instantly you had a transformation from the dreaded Hun to the dreaded Red. And Dwight MacDonald, who somebody mentioned Trotsky, Dwight, I'll just as an aside, MacDonald, a writer I like very much, he's not read as much as he should be, he's also a very eloquent writer. Um, and just to go back to Chomsky, uh, MacDonald, uh, had published a magazine called Politics for five years right after World War II, which never had a circulation above 5,000. Um, but he published Orwell, Betelheim, Hannah Arendt. And when you ask Chomsky, it was that magazine that brought about what Chomsky says was his political awakening. Um, and there's a wonderful essay by MacDonald called Mass Cult, Mid Cult, where he argues that intellectuals should never dumb themselves down for the masses, that when we get obsessed with the numbers that we reach, um, we end up diluting the intellectual power of our ideas. Um, and I think the fact that Chomsky, as you know, a young uh, man, is reading voraciously politics is an example uh, of McDonald's point. And McDonald says that at the end of World War I, we created something new within our society, and that was what he called the psychosis of permanent war. Because now it began the war against communism. Now, of course, it's the war against terror. But it was used as a kind of uh, to keep the population constantly on edge, to constantly attempt to ferret out internal and external enemies. And that's when you see massive 
amounts of repression in the name of anti-communism that decimates most of our radical movements. Going back to the liberal class, the liberal class was never designed to be the political left. That's not why a liberal class exists in a capitalist democracy. A liberal class, and Dostoevsky writes about this, um, this is what Demons is about, it's what Notes from Underground is about, it's about that collapse of the liberal, the mouse man, the defeated dreamer, the cynic. The liberal class is a safety valve so that you have radical movements that hold fast to an immoral imperative, whether that's the abolitionists, whether that's the suffragists, whether that's the labor movement, that pressures the liberal class to respond. And Karl Popper makes this point in uh, his great book, uh, The Enemies of the Open Society, that, that it's the liberal class that makes piecemeal or incremental reform possible. It's the liberal class that can adjust the system to ameliorate widespread suffering among the underclass. So when you have the breakdown of capitalism in the 1930s, you have figures like Roosevelt and his vice president, Henry Wallace, who step in and create the New Deal. And Roosevelt says that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. That's what a liberal class does. It was never designed to be the left. Because all of the advances within my country and your country came from radical movements that never achieved formal positions of power. I mean, one of the great successes in Canada is the fact that you have universal health care because your unions had a vision for your country rather than... rather than for their own workers. We don't have universal health care because our unions uh, were decimated ideologically. And you saw it in the night, the, the kind of uh, example of that was the 1960s where the unions were completely divorced from the left, the new left, they called them. So you, you had the new left in the streets supporting the civil rights movement, denouncing the war in Vietnam, and the unions, uh, like the AFL-CIO, were passing resolutions backing Nixon's war in Indochina and denouncing all the hippies in the street. Now, that was a catastrophic development. Before World War I, that wasn't true. One of the chapters that we do in this book is out of uh, the coal fields of southern West Virginia. We went to statistically the poorest parts of the United States. And before the war, Mother Jones, John Lewis, these great radical figures were the heroes of the coal miners. Now it's Sarah Palin. And it, is that, it was that disconnect from, of, of labor, and that was done intentionally uh, by purging in the name of communism, uh, essentially pushing uh, anybody within these institutions outside of the mainstream. I taught a couple years ago at the University of Toronto uh, and I went and found Chandler Davis, um, who was a victim of the purges in the 1950s where we lost thousands of academics, thousands. And not just academics, high school teachers, social workers. It used to be in the United States that social workers, imagine it, would use their unionized clout on behalf of their clients. Journalists like I.F. Stone, 
actors, writers, directors, all pushed out. And Davis spent, uh, because he wouldn't name names, spent six months in a federal prison and wrote some mathematical treatise that I couldn't begin to understand. But the funny part is that he dedicated it to the federal prison authorities who housed him and fed him during his research. Uh, and that was the kind of final blow for us. Um, our, 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 we, we destroyed our radical movements and we hollowed our liberal movements out from the inside. And then we give birth to these freaks, beginning with Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton, the fact that these people can still, through the smoke machine of modern propaganda, uh, present themselves as sort of protectors of the common man or woman is a bit staggering when you look at the record. Um, it was Clinton, of course, that pushed through NAFTA. Uh, it was Clinton that passed the omnibus bill, which exploded our prison system. 2.2 million prisoners. We have the largest prison population in the world. Uh, when you count all those people who are on probation, um, I think the numbers rise to about 7 million, and of course, most of them are poor people of color. Uh, and I teach every Thursday night in a maximum security prison. Um, they're certainly by far some of the smartest students I have. Um, it's exactly the opposite of teaching at a place like University of Toronto where you have to write something for your, in your course catalog to entice undergraduates. When you write a course description for the prison administrators, it has to look absolutely as bland and boring as possible. So the last class I taught, I said, American history, uh, the story of the founding of our nation, and our founding fathers, and the Constitution, and, and, uh, and they approved it, and then I bought every prisoner a copy of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. <laughs> and I, I never met Zinn, sadly. Um, and I always loved Zinn. Uh, his uh, essays on history, politics and history, are written in 75, I think, are really, really brilliant. Um, but Zinn is one of the very few white historians, and I think it's because he taught at Spelman, who has a, a real uh, sensitivity to uh, the suffering of African Americans in the United States. And that runs throughout that book, as I know many of you have read it. And uh, when I would teach it, uh, I would hear, you know, I would give, I, I used to, try and run seminars in prisons, which if anyone goes to teach in prison, I can tell you is a really bad idea because somehow every discussion evolved into discussions about the hood. Um, so now I run it like an autocrat where I take 90 minute notes and you have to raise your hand. But I would hear the prisoners go, damn, damn, we've been lied to. Um, and um, Zinn understood as, you know, when you go back and read Hofstetter and others, that the American system was set up in such a way as to preclude popular direct democracy. White, our white male slaveholding class created mechanisms by which popular rule, and you see it in the Federalist Papers, they were terrified of popular rule. So you had the Senate, which had most of legislative power, used to be appointed. You, we still have the Electoral College. It's how you get this imbalance where uh, Al Gore wins 500,000 more votes than George W. Bush, and George W. Bush is, well, 
George wasn't elected, George W. Bush was appointed by, the, by fiat, by the Supreme Court, um, to be uh, our president. Um, uh, you uh, disenfranchise Native Americans, African Americans, women, people with property. And so when Zinn writes this history from the beginning, he's deeply cognizant of the fact that every opening up in the democratic system was caused by movements that held fast to moral imperatives but never achieved formal positions of power. They pressured the center to respond. Uh, and perhaps the last great example of that would be the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King. And you could certainly argue that until he was assassinated in 1968, the most powerful political figure in the United States was Dr. King because when he went to Memphis, 50,000 people went with him. And it is a matter of recapturing, rebuilding those movements and not putting our faith into politicians like a Bill Clinton. Clinton, the omnibus bill, NAFTA, um, he deregulated the FCC, and I'm watching now uh, the same kind of process happen in Canada. I mean, you've even got right to work laws. Have they passed those things yet in Ottawa? Not yet? Well, if you guys don't go out on a general strike, the moment they pass it, you're finished. Because Canada, You have to look at what happened to the labor movement. Canada still has, I think, 36 or 38% union. Even at our height, in the, that's the most we ever got in the 50s. So that gives you enough power, especially among public sector employees, and go look at what happened in the United States. That they chip away the power of unions, especially the ability to strike, until there's nothing left. And they're so emasculated, they're on their knees like the United Auto Workers in the bailout. The United Auto Workers in the bailout, when the bailout came, a provision in the bailout said the UAW had to agree that it would, number one, it would never strike. Number two, its senior workers who were making about $75 an hour would be reduced to 50, and the auto companies would be allowed to hire all new workers at $14 an hour. That's where you're headed. Um, and you still have enough power in Canada, organized power, to resist. And for me, the right to work law, what a great Orwellian name, the right to work law should absolutely be the red line. At that point, um, you have to shut the country down because that's the only language Harper speaks. Popper says that, uh, you know, in his book, that, uh, you know, the question's not how do we get good people to rule that that's the wrong question. Popper says, most people attracted to power are at best mediocre, okay, Obama, venal, or venal, Harper. The question, the question is, how do you make the powerful afraid of you? There's a wonderful moment in Kissinger's memoirs, do not buy the book, <laughs> where it's 1971, at the height of the anti-war movement, and several hundred thousand people have surrounded the White House, and Nixon, who's scared out of his mind, has got empty city buses and put them end-to-end -end like a, a wagon, a circle, uh, uh, as a barricade, 
and he's looking out the window uh, going, Henry, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. And that's just where we want people in power to be. We who care about social justice, and I, I think in this I come down on the side of the anarchists, power is the problem. We who care about social justice must accept that we are perpetually alienated from power. That is our job to organize and push and frighten those in power to respond. Uh, and I think that with the collapse of liberalism, the rise of these faux liberals like Obama, like Clinton, that speak in that traditional feel-your-pain language of liberalism and yet betray the very constituency that they purport to defend are an example of that. So Clinton destroys mass communication, so we have roughly a half dozen corporations in the United States, Viacom, General Electric, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, Disney, Clear Channel, that control the airwaves. He... Um, rips down the firewalls between investment and commercial banks, which fortunately your Prime Minister Chrétien did not do, which is why you don't have a banking crisis, uh, and precipitated both the national uh, meltdown and the global meltdown, and he destroyed welfare. Uh, and what's particularly tragic about Clinton's destruction of welfare is that under the old welfare system, 70% of the recipients were children. Obama has carried out a far more egregious assault on civil liberties in the United States than George W. Bush. The FISA Amendment Act, which retroactively makes legal what under our Constitution used to be illegal, the warrantless wiretapping, monitoring, eavesdropping, of now we know because of Edward Snowden virtually all Americans uh, and Canadians. Um, the radical interpretation of the 2001 Authorization to Use Military Force Act, which he believes gives him the right to drop kill lists uh, and assassinate uh, people around the globe, even people in countries like Yemen, which we are not technically at war with, uh, even American citizens. Uh, the uh, use of torture. We openly torture in our offshore penal colonies. And the use of the Espionage Act seven times, the last time was against Snowden, to shut down people internally who exposed the crimes of state, including Chelsea Manning, um, who uh, will go down in, a, in American history when somebody writes a true account of American history as uh, one of the most heroic figures in my country. And then, as you heard, the National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1021, uh, and uh, for which I sued the president in court, Hedges versus Obama. Um, and uh, Section 1021 of the NDAA um, permits the government to 
use the military, that's overturning 150 years of domestic law, which by the military was prevented from domestic policing, use the military to seize anyone who substantially supports, now that's not a legal term, that's not material support, substantially supports Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or something called associated forces. Strip them of due process and hold them indefinitely in military detention centers. We brought the case, and I was no, joined in the case by Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, and other activists, uh, and we won. And uh, what was fascinating was the response of the Obama administration. The Obama administration, we knew they'd appeal, but they didn't just appeal. They went to the day Judge Forrest, Catherine Forrest, issued her ruling. They went to her chambers and they said, in the name of national security, we must issue a temporary injunction until the Second Circuit, which is the next level of the court before you get to the Supreme Court. Here's the case. And she refused. And so they demanded an emergency hearing. This was on a Friday afternoon for 9 a.m. on Monday morning with the Second Circuit. And they made the same argument to the appellate court saying, we need uh, a temporary injunction. We need the law put back into effect until you hear the case. Now why? Why did they act so aggressively? The only reason, at least the, as far as the lawyers and I can figure out, is because they're already using the law. Probably against dual Pakistani U.S. nationals in places like Bagram. Because if that injunction was allowed to stand and it was discovered that they were holding an American citizen without giving them due process, or a right to a lawyer, right to trial, um, they would be in contempt of court. Unfortunately for us in July, uh, the appellate court ruled against us uh, and overturned Judge Forrest's decision. Uh, and we are now in the process of filing papers in an attempt to get the Supreme Court to take the case. They may not take it. Um, the Supreme Court, I think, gets about 8,000 requests a year. They take between 80 and 100 cases. Um, but we're certainly fighting on every level. Um, and uh, we were talking before in the back room about despair. Um, I have to be honest with you. I am in despair. How can you not sit and read what we're doing to the ecosystem and what we're doing to ourselves with the rise of a corporate totalitarianism with a security and surveillance apparatus that dwarfs anything in human history, including the old Stasi state, uh, East Germany, which I cover. I covered that revolution as a reporter. Uh, and yet, I think, and I'm going to end by reading just a little section of my book, I think in, in some ways I go back to my own training as a seminarian, whereby uh, you are called to do the good, or at least the good insofar as you can determine it. And faith means that you let it go. Faith is the belief that it goes somewhere, that the good draws to it the good. The Buddhists call it karma. And yet, empirically, everything around us may say otherwise. And I think that given the fact that we now stand on the cusp of arguably potentially the most catastrophic moment in the life of our planet and the life of the human species. It is incumbent, especially on those of us who are older, 
to stand up because this system has deeply betrayed my children and the next generation. And even if we fail, I want that next generation and I certainly want my children to look back at what I did and say he tried. I'm going to close by reading Cornell West and I, who Cornell and I were, uh, were, we, Cornell doesn't like to, he's so well known in the United States, he won't take public transportation because everyone talks to him. So we were going, we were going together to the Bradley Manning trial. And uh, I, I really admire and love Cornell deeply. Um, and, uh, but we'd have to drive uh, uh, because he wouldn't go on the train. We both live in Princeton. Um, and so, because we wanted to get in the courtroom, they were only allowing 21 people in the courtroom, we would get, I'd pick Cornell up at his house at three in the morning. <laughs> um, uh, fortunately, Cornell doesn't stop talking and is very entertaining all the way down, including knowing the history of like every R&B song ever written. Um, so, the, all the way down, it's, he's playing like classic soul. And I, I like, I have a small, I have like a small body of knowledge. I mean, Cornell knows everything about everything, but he, I have a small body of knowledge and he'll go, oh yeah, that, that James Brown, Bootsy Collins wrote that for him when he was 19. That's like, uh, so all the way down to Manning, all the way back. Um, but Cornell and I were in uh, Zuccotti Park and we held uh, a people's hearing of Goldman Sachs. And we brought in uh, people who had lost their jobs in the public school system uh, single mothers who had been evicted from their houses, and then we marched on Goldman Sachs. And this is, I'm just going to close by reading this little section. It's about that march that day. Faces appeared to me moments before protesters from Occupy Wall Street and I were arrested on a windy November afternoon in front of Goldman Sachs. They were not the faces of the smug Goldman Sachs employees who peered at us through the revolving glass doors and lobby windows, a pathetic collection of middle-aged fraternity and sorority members. They were not the faces of the blue uniform police with their dangling plastic handcuffs or the thuggish Goldman Sachs security personnel whose buzz cuts and dead eyes reminded me of the Stasi. They were not the faces of the demonstrators around me, the ones with massive student debts and no jobs, the ones weighed down by their broken dreams, the ones whose anger and betrayal triggered the street demonstrations and occupations for justice. They were not the faces of the onlookers the construction workers who seemed cheered by the march on Goldman Sachs or the suited businessmen who did not. They were far away faces. They were the faces of children dying. They were tiny, confused, bewildered faces I had seen in the southern Sudan, Gaza, the slums of Brazzaville, Nairobi, Cairo, Delhi, and the wars I covered. 
They were faces with large, glassy eyes above bloated bellies. They were the small faces of children convulsed by the ravages of starvation and disease. I carry these faces. They do not leave me. I look at my own children and cannot forget them, these other children who never had a chance. War brings with it a host of horrors, but the worst is always the human detritus that war and famine leave behind, the small, frail bodies whose tangled limbs and vacant eyes condemn us all. The wealthy and the powerful, the ones behind the glass at Goldman Sachs laughed and snapped pictures of us as if we were an odd lunchtime diversion from commodities trading, from hoarding and profit, from the collective sickness of money worship, as if we were creatures in a cage, which in fact we soon were. Goldman Sachs Commodities Index is the most heavily traded in the world. The financial firm hoards futures of rice, wheat, corn, sugar, and livestock, and jacks up commodity prices by as much as 200% on the global market so that poor families can no longer afford basic staples and literally starve. Hundreds of millions of poor in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America do not have enough to eat in order to feed this mania for profit. The technical jargon learned in business schools and on trading floors effectively masks the reality of what is happening, murder. The cold, neutral words of business and commerce are designed to make systems operate, even systems of death, with a ruthless efficiency. The people behind the windows and those of us with arms locked in a circle on the concrete outside did not speak the same language. Profit, trade, speculation, globalization, war, national security. These are the words they use to justify the snuffing out of tiny lives, acts of radical evil. The glass tower before us is filled with people carefully selected for the polish and self-assurance that come with having been formed in institutions of privilege. Their primary attributes are a lack of consciousness, a penchant for deception, aggressiveness, a worship of money, and an incapacity for empathy or remorse. It is always the respectable classes, the polished Ivy League graduates, the prep school boys and girls who grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Short Hills, New Jersey, who are the most susceptible to evil. To be intelligent, as many are, at least in a narrow, analytical way, is morally neutral. These respectable citizens are inculcated in their elitist ghettos with values and norms, including pious acts of charity used to justify their privilege and a belief in the innate goodness of American power. They are trained to pay deference to systems of authority. They are taught to believe in their own goodness, 
unable to see or comprehend, and are perhaps indifferent to the cruelty inflicted on others by the exclusive systems they serve. And as norms change, as the world is steadily transformed by corporate forces into a small cobble of predators and a vast herd of human prey, these elites seamlessly replace one set of values with another. These elites obey the rules. They make the system work, and they are rewarded for this. In return, they do not question. We seem to have lost, at least until the advent of the Occupy Wall Street movement, not only all personal responsibility, but all capacity for personal judgment. Corporate culture absolves all of responsibility. This is part of its appeal. It relieves all from moral choice. There is an unequivocal acceptance of principles such as unregulated capitalism and globalization as a kind of natural law. The steady march of corporate capitalism requires a passive acceptance of new laws and demolished regulations of bailouts in the trillions of dollars and the systematic looting of public funds of lies and deceit. The corporate culture epitomized by Goldman Sachs has seeped into our classrooms, our newsrooms, our entertainment systems, and our consciousness. This corporate culture has stripped us of the right to express ourselves outside of the narrow confines of the established political order. We are forced to surrender our voice. Corporate culture serves a faceless system. It is, as Hannah Arendt wrote, the rule of nobody, and for this very reason, perhaps the least human and most cruel form of rulership. Those who resist, the doubters, outcasts, artists, renegades, skeptics, and rebels rarely come from the elite. They ask different questions. They seek something else, a life of meaning. They have grasped Immanuel Kant's dictum, if justice perishes, human life on earth has lost its meaning. And in their search, they come to the conclusion that as Socrates said, it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. This conclusion makes a leap into the moral. It refuses to place a monetary value on human life. It acknowledges human life, indeed all life, as sacred. And this is why, as Arendt points out, the only morally reliable people are not those who say this is wrong or this should not be done, but those who say, I can't. The greatest evildoers are those who don't remember because they have never given thought to the matter. And without remembrance, nothing can hold them back, Arendt wrote. For human beings, thinking of past matters means moving in the dimension of depth, striking roots, and thus stabilizing ourselves so as not to be swept away by whatever may occur, the zeitgeist or history or simple temptation. The greatest evil is not radical. It has no roots, and because it has no roots, it has no limitations. It can go to unthinkable extremes and sweep over the whole world. 
There are streaks in my lungs, traces of the tuberculosis I picked up around hundreds of dying Sudanese during the famine I covered as a foreign correspondent. I was strong and privileged and fought off the disease. They were not and did not. The bodies, most of them children, were dumped into hastily dug mass graves. The scars I carry within me are the whispers of these dead. They are the faint marks of those who never had a chance to become men or women, to fall in love and have children of their own. I carried these scars to the doors of Goldman Sachs. I placed myself at the feet of these commodity traders to call for justice because the dead and those dying in slums and refugee camps across the planet could not make the journey. I see their faces. They haunt me in the day and come to me in the dark. They force me to remember and they make me choose sides. Thank you.